Father, as we open the Word and as we reflect on what you might teach us on this subject, I pray that your Holy Spirit may enlighten our minds and warm our hearts to trust you and be faithful to you and learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Zechariah 4, 6, this is the word of the Lord, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Some of you probably know about Pastor Pavel Goya. He's a pastor in Kentucky now. He is originally from Romania. And there's a book written about him called um, One Miracle After Another. And that's really exact, that's well named, well titled. You can find that at the ABC. In one of the stories, and I have it in my book too, and it might be easier for me to read it. But anyway, I'll try to say it fast. It's, he was, in, under communism in Romania, he was, he was a young, young man, a very skilled, talented man. And he was working with textiles and uh, was making a lot of money under communism. He was making about a half a million dollars a year as a businessman. And he had this house and that house and this car and that car and uh, went to Germany a number of times to do, the, to do work and uh, learn from them. Well, the Germans wanted to partner with him, which would have increased his salary to about $2 million a year. Okay, this is under communism. You know how much uh, money a pastor makes in communist Romania? Uh, less than 200 Dollars a month. So from that to $2 million a year, all right? And it was just at this point when he was thinking about teaming up with a German company and, and making that much more money when the conference asked him if he would consider pastoring a four-church district. Now, that four-church district was trouble. Uh, he had been a, a very involved layperson, especially working with the youth. He didn't say to them, you know, we're about to make $2 million a year. We can't give that up. He, he just put it to prayer and, 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 and prayed to, along with his wife, what do you want us to do, God? And so they were convicted that they should take this call. What that meant is that they had to get rid of all their homes and they had to get rid of their nice BMWs because that would not fit with the lifestyle of most of the poor members in the church. And so he did that and he got a little Russian jalopy um, to fit with the rest of the, of the members. Unfortunately, a lot of trouble was going on in that church. There were a lot of people, you know, jockeying for position and every board meeting was a... a a, a field battle, and he was discouraged. I said, man, I give up all of this, and, and look at what I have. I have to babysit these people who, do not even, who are not even really basic Christians. And so he, he, started, he started saying, why don't, why don't I, let me try an idea. Why don't, why don't we start praying together in homes? Just uh, let's have small groups of prayer and see what happened. Well, over a period of two years, the Lord started changing those people to the point that now the churches began to grow and be healed and God began to really work in their lives. And, and it was wonderful. I mean, it, it, things really began to happen. As things began to happen, then he was able to start having evangelistic meetings because now people had a passion for share, to share their faith. And one of them was going to be in this city, in this town, and he was headed. That was going to take place in about two or three weeks. He was driving out there one day, and all of a sudden, the town idiot, and I don't say that disrespectfully, but um, it was a young boy, 19 years old, who was known as the town idiot. He he had no motor coordination. He had problems with his back and with his thinking processes. And everybody knew him. Everybody in the whole region knew who he was. His name was Mene Mene. And they even made fun of him. They called him Mene Mene because he stuttered also. Well, <clears throat> this, this young man tried to cross the highway where he was driving. And he came out of nowhere and he hit him. And he sent him up, this, up, up 
you know, up above, and he came down and hit him again, ran over him. Can you imagine? So they rush him to the hospital. He has a broken spine in several places. He has a collapsed lung. He has brain hemorrhage. He has a broken hip and broken arm and a broken leg. The guy is dying. They work on him and work on him, and he dies. All the medical personnel, they put a sheet over him, and they wait until the, the person from the morgue comes up and gets it. And, and um, Pastor Goya is just despairing. It's like, what? Can you imagine that? But what he does, you have to read, you know, you have to know this guy. What he does is he starts praying. He kneels down next to the body, and he starts praying out loud for Jesus to resurrect him. Because he says, these people do not know the power of God. They're communist doctors. They don't know the power. They don't know the Bible. They don't know God. And, Lord, you have led us to these meetings. You have really worked in, the, in these churches. I cannot really believe that this is really what you want to see happen. Because now what they're going to say, the Adventist pastor killed the mene mene, and, and so everything's going to go south. You, you must use this for your glory. You must use this for your glory. You must do something about this. A doctor comes and says, what are you doing? He says, I'm praying. I'm praying to the God of heaven. He says, don't pray. He says, if you had a chance to pray, you should have prayed before he's dead. He's dead now. Even the God of heaven can't do anything about that. Go home. And so he went home. And he went home and prayed with his wife all night through. And the next morning, he came back because he wanted to see the family and uh, offer his condolences and apologies to his family, to the boy's family. But there was a big to-do at the hospital. Um, even cameras, even, even you know, journalists and, and all the medical personnel was all about... Sure enough, the the guy in the morgue found this boy, you know, he sat up and he said, I'm hungry, is there something to eat? And so the doctors are all over him trying to say, how, how, this guy was dead, we know that he was dead. But not only that, not only is he alive, he doesn't have a collapsed lung anymore. He doesn't have any brain hemorrhage anymore. He doesn't have any spinal problems anymore. It was in three areas. It was broken. Now it's all healed. There's nothing wrong with his spine. His hip is fine. The only thing he has a problem with, he, said he has a broken leg and a broken arm, and that's all he has. He does not even stutter anymore. So, how do you think those evangelistic meetings, uh, you know, fared two weeks after this incident? Cities where, I mean, everybody was there. They all wanted to hear from this pastor who, whose God can resurrect people. See, the same Holy Spirit is available to you and me, believe it or not. It is the same Holy Spirit that gives life. The Bible says it was the Holy Spirit that resurrected Jesus. Jesus said, my father gave me permission to lay down my life and to take it up again. But he didn't exercise his authority to, to raise himself up again. The Bible doesn't say about anything about Jesus resurrecting himself. The Bible says that God resurrected him. Or that the Holy Spirit resurrected him. Jesus did exercise his authority to lay down his life. But not to take it up again. So the same Holy Spirit 
can resurrect, right? The Holy Spirit, and this is happening to a, 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 a contemporary of ours. Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? Now think about that question for a moment. Are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? Is what you engage in, is what you spend your time in, is what you think about worth the death, death of the Son of God? Well, in the case of Pavel Goya, it was. It is, you know, he is engaged, he was engaged in things that really mattered, that counted, that God could use for his glory and for the benefit of many. But most churches are more concerned with survival than with revival. Do you know what I mean? Most churches are concerned with just making it. Listen to this statement. If God were to take the Holy Spirit out of our midst today, about 95% of what we're doing in our churches would go on and we would not know the difference. And the second part, yet if God had taken the Holy Spirit out of the midst of the first Christian community, about 95% of what they were doing would have ceased immediately. That's a statement by Dr. Carl Bates. He, is a, he was a Baptist leader, but it applies just as well to our churches. In the early church, the early New Testament church, nothing was done, was done the first few years, nothing was done without the work of the Spirit of God. And that's why ministry was so effective in so many ways. In the book of Acts, you find... 29 clear statements about growth, tangible, concrete growth, such as the 3,000 that were baptized one day, the 5,000 that were baptized, or the multitudes that were baptized in, in, in chapter 6, or pagan rulers or Jewish leaders that were baptized, including priests that were baptized. These were the very people that had crucified Jesus before. Entire towns such as Sharon and Lydda were uh, turned over to Jesus and, and, and became Christians. Former spiritualists became Christians. Miracle after another. And then in the same book of Acts, you find the Holy Spirit mentioned 55 times. Nine times in reference to Pentecost. And then they said, you know, the Holy Spirit filling people as they spoke, you know, as they spoke boldly for Christ. Leaders were full of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine a, 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 um, a church, a um, nominating committee in the church saying the only qualification we will have to ask somebody to serve in this ministry or that ministry is if that person gives evidence of the Holy Spirit. Think about that, huh? But that's what happened then. They said, choose from among you seven men full of the Holy Spirit. How did they know they were full of the Holy Spirit? They must have given evidence of that. You know, in that first session, we talked about the evidence, which is what? The fruit of the Spirit of God and the giftedness. But the fruit of the Spirit is the clearest evidence. So this is noticeable. When a person says, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? Well, then that probably is, there's some deficiency there then. In, in the case of Paul, remember when he went to Ephesus and he, he saw those 12 disciples and he says, have you received the Holy Spirit when you first believed? Why would he ask that question? Unless he saw that there was no evidence of the Holy Spirit. So the evidence of the Holy Spirit can be really concrete and real. The reception of the Holy Spirit is, speaking, is spoken of a number of times in the book of Acts. The Spirit led in the missionary journeys of Paul and the other apostles. So the early church was a church led by the Spirit. And no wonder the book of Colossians says that in 30 years... The whole Roman world heard about Jesus. That's all of Northern Africa, all of the Middle East, and all of Southern Europe. 
in 30 years. No internet, no satellite, no TV, no videos, no DVDs, no cell phones, no texting. You had to go there to talk with somebody. So what's the key to ministry power in the Spirit? What's the key to ministry power in the Spirit? I'm going to keep this very simple. I'm going to keep this very simple. There are four statements of the Great Commission. Did you know that? Most of us think of only one of them, right? The one in Matthew 28. That's only one of the four statements Jesus has on the Great Commission. They're all Great Commission, but they're all slightly different. Four statements. In Matthew 1, in Mark 1, in Luke 1, and in Acts 1. In, uh, the one we're not going to talk about is the one in Mark. In Mark 16, we're told, you know, go and preach to all nations. That's the way the Great Commission is there. And Matthew is, go make disciples of all the nations, Remember? baptizing them in the name of the Father, single name, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I commanded you. In Luke is, you're witnesses of these things. Thus, go and tell them about the repentance, you know, that there is repentance of, I mean, that there is repentance and forgiveness of sins for those who you are telling us telling them about what I went through. And in Acts, wait in Jerusalem until you have power from on high. So let's look at three of them. Here's the first one in Luke. This is the night of Jesus' resurrection. Luke 24, the night of Jesus' resurrection. And this will give us the first key. I want to show you three keys. The key is actually three. And they all come from the Great Commission statements. Number one, he opened their minds to understand scriptures. It is written that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be, would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. You are witnesses of these things, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed, um, you're clothed with power from on high. You see that expression, power from on high. All right? So how do you get this power from on high? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So it, the focus is to proclaim forgiveness of sins. And that that is available, that is available through repentance. Forgiveness of sins. So key number one. Tell everyone that God really, really, really loves them. That He's willing to forgive your sins. That He's willing to remake you, to, to start over with you. Tell people God really, really loves them. Do you know that most people... Most Christians have no clue that there is a God that actually loves them. Not a clue, not a one. If you're a Hindu, if you're a Buddhist, if you're a Shintoist, if you are a, a, a Muslim, you do not believe, you do not understand a personal God. That does not exist for you. And if you're, if you're Catholic, if you're Orthodox, if you're a number of the Christian denominations, some of the largest ones, you still do not understand a personal God because that God is too transcendent. He's too holy, too other, too much away from you. That's why you need the Virgin Mary and, 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 and all of those other, other mediums because you can't get to God. So that, that, that reduces the number of people who can understand a personal God in, as a very small minority of the population of the world. And then in addition to that, many people who may understand that intellectually do not understand that experientially. They may say, like you and me, we belong to denominations that understand a personal God, but we may understand him only at the mental level. 
And we may say, oh, Jesus loves me, but we mean nothing by that. And what does it mean that Jesus loves me? We, we take it for granted. We don't really fully know what that means. And the evidence is in our lives. The truth of the matter is that if you really, really are loved beyond normalcy, beyond anything that, I mean, really, really loved, if you really know you're loved, it's impossible to stay the same. It is almost, it is, how shall I put it, it is overwhelming. It really is overwhelming. That was Paul's message to the Gentiles. The message to the Gentiles, that's why Paul is so big on the Gentiles. And that was, that's why such a theme in the New Testament, because the Gentiles were considered dogs by the people of God. They were called dogs. And dogs in those days were not your pets, dogs. They were mangy, kick him out of sight, dogs. You, you didn't want to stay around them. And that's what everyone else outside of Israel was considered. And they knew it. And they expected that. And so Paul goes and he says, you know what God has done? He has done it for you. Not just for the Israelites. He has really done this. He has died for the world. And he has loved the world. And he has loved everyone in the world. And he, has, he wants to engage with people in the world. That is, that is a concept that was totally foreign to any idolatrous nation. The Romans had over 300 gods. And not one of them was interested in human beings. Because... They need, I mean, the only interest gods have in human beings is to take some advantage of them or to get something from them or to, uh, or to get them to be appeased because they were more powerful, but not because they loved human beings. No such a thing. That did not exist. But look at these statements to the Corinthians. If we are beside ourselves, that means if we are a little Lulu, if we are a little... If we come across as a little out of our minds, a little crazy, giddy, crazy, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. In other words, we, we, we get a little more serious in front of you because you think you're going to really out, of, out to lunch. We, we are so giddy with God, so happy with Him. He's so good to us that we come across as a little out of it. So when we're with you, we're a little more circumspect for your sake, he says. But that's not because of how we feel. We feel really overwhelmed by the love of God. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. This is what we concluded as we thought about him. He says, you know what compel is? To compel is like, is the engine of your car. If you have a good engine, you can go up a hill by just tapping that accelerator. Now, there are cars that you do that and you stay. <laughs> but if you have a good engine, right, it goes, goes right up. That's compel. Compel is the engine that moves you. And, Jesus, and, and Paul says, the love of Christ is the engine that moves me. It moves us. If one died for all, then all died. In other words, if Jesus died for me, why should I live myself? I don't want to. He died for me. If He died for me, He died the good life for me. He, died, he put down a perfect life for me. I'm going to put down my imperfect life for Him. All died for all. He died for all so that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. 
So Paul understood and he says, Corinthians, you've got to understand this great love of God. That's why we go giddy. We go, we go really crazy about this. And that's why we do things that you cannot understand because we, are, we feel overwhelmed by the love of God. That's what moves us. That's what makes us do things for others. He spoke to the Ephesians and he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, I wish you would know the breadth and length and height and, and, and depth of the love of God. It passes, I cannot teach it to you fully. It passes knowledge. You must experience this. I pray for this. It says, I bow my knees so that you may understand that, Ephesians. And he says to the Philippians, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may gain Christ. In other words, for Paul, everything was nothing compared to Christ. Christ was everything. Because he was more than everything else. And he said, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. What power is that? That is superpower. That is really power. That's the power of the, of, the, of the Holy Spirit. The power of the resurrection that can make things out of nothing, that can change everything from death to life. And the fellowship of his suffering is being conformed to his death. In other words, Paul was teaching this is the key to it all. Know how much God loves you. Have you ever really known that? You know, it is, we may go for decades as Christians without fully knowing the love of Christ for us. In other words, we may know that at an intellectual level only, but that is not enough. And the, and the difference is, whenever somebody does really catch on to the love of Christ, experientially, that's something to write home about. That's something that, that it is unforgettable. That's something that, that really, all of a sudden, the sky opens wide. One early morning, I was teaching at Southern. I experienced something like that. I was in my 30s. I've been, you know, I'm a fourth-generation Adventist. And I grew up as an Adventist. My family, solid Adventists. Always loved the Lord, but never really loved Him. You know what I mean? Really put Him first. But I, do, I did appreciate him, and I, I was conscious of that. But one morning I started, I was doing research. I went early to the office to do some research, and I stumbled on this statement by Zarve Ages that is a statement that I had read many times before, but for some of the reason that morning it took. That morning it became very real. And that statement... Oh, I don't have it here. That statement is in Desire of Ages 755 and 756, where Ellen White speaks about what Jesus gave up at the cross for you. And she keeps saying, for thee, for thee, she uses the King James expression, for thee he gave up this, for thee he did this, for thee he did that. And I kept reading, and I started, all of a sudden, I saw it, that the God of the universe 
the holy of holies, the, the master of it all, the son of God had done all of this for me. For me. As if I were the only one in the universe for whom he did this. And it was overwhelming. So overwhelming. I started, I, I started bawling. I, I started bawling. I dropped on my knees and I cried and I cried. And I was in that state for about 45 minutes. I've never cried so much in my life like a baby, literally, uh, convulsions. It was, it was like everything about me was coming out. And I kept saying, why, Lord, do you love me so much? Why do you love me so much? And I fun instantly understood that, that hymn of Charles Wesley where it says that my God has, has died for me. My God has died for me. I mean, that's unconscionable. Not even the president dies for you. Not even your parents die for you. They might. But God, it was so overwhelming. At one point... Uh, I was afraid of two things. I was afraid of opening my eyes because I thought that I would see Jesus. It was so tangible, so real, so concrete. And the other one is I asked him. I, I didn't even, it came a point that it was such a holy moment, if you will, that I didn't want to speak anymore. It seemed like if I uttered any words, I would soil the place. You know, I would, I would just bring something bad to it. And so I thought it, knowing that God can read my thoughts, and I said, Lord, if you show me more of your love, I am going to explode. Quite literally. I don't think I can take more of that love. I cannot, I cannot, if I understand more of your love, I am going to just... That's just one glimpse. I'm 56. One glimpse. Imagine seeing it more and more and more and more. I'm telling you, Paul is right. The love of Christ compels us. You know, after that, do you think I wanted to spend time doing my own thing? Do you think I wanted to, you know, complain about anything? Do you think I wanted to become selfish on this or that? Or, uh-uh, it was like, I don't even deserve to be used as a servant of God by Him. And I, but, but if you want something, if you want something, then God, if you can use me, do it in whatever way you want. I don't want a single thing of my own to mess it up for you, whatever you want. That's the key. That's an important key in ministry effectiveness. To tell others that this Jesus really, 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 really loves you. That God is, a, this is the kind of a God we're dealing with. That he is absolutely out of this world. And that is very real. And that he will change our lives. And that he will do the impossible. And that this is the kind of God we're dealing with. And you need to deal with that on a personal level. If I do not know Him, 
I can talk until I'm blue in the faith and face and quote a lot of scripture and it still will not land. It will not make much of a difference. In fact, it will do something deceptive. It'll make me think I'm doing God's work and make, give me a false sense of confidence that I'm doing God's work when in reality I'm actually not doing God's work. I'm just going through the motions because it's not real yet. It's not real. I remember baptizing a 21-year-old who was hooked on drugs for a number of years. And uh, when we prayed, there were three people baptized that afternoon. We always had baptisms in the afternoon. We made a big celebration out of it, testimonies. And um, I'll never forget, in my office, on the floor, we were praying, the four of us. And he said something so wise. He said, God, I want to really, really thank you for waiting for me. For waiting 21 years to call me to yourself. You could have given up on me so long ago, but you did not. And you stayed with me until I actually answered. The love of God. In 1888, the General Conference session in Minneapolis, you know the story. Um, Ellen White says that James and Wag I mean Jones and Wagner were two instruments of God, two young editors who had a refocus on the person of Jesus Christ, and that would bring the great revival in the latter rain power in the church. And the latter rain power was started in 1888, believe it or not. It's pretty dry, but it started then. These are a few words. The Lord, in His great mercy, sent a most precious message to His people, she wrote later, through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. See, Adventists were good at Bible study. And Adventists were good at debating. And they won all the debates because they knew the Bible better than anybody else. But somehow they had lost that first love that was during the Millerite movement, they had lost that, that love for God and that understanding of Jesus on a personal level. She continues to say, it presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to His divine person, His merits, and His changeless love for the human family. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. This is the message to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of His Spirit in a large measure. Testimonies to Ministers 91 and 2. You know what? The church grew in the 1990s as a result of this. In, 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 relatively few ministers actually took hold of it. Most of them rejected it or, or were indifferent. But a few took hold of it. And Ellen White, as well as Jones and Wagner and others, started preaching in churches and revivals began to take place in the Adventist church in the 90s, 93 particularly, 91, 93, 95, major revivals in the church in Battle Creek and the East Coast and the West Coast. And you know what happened? The church grew by 12.4% that decade. That's a remarkable, that's the second largest growth ever in the history of the 170-year history of the church. 150, whatever, 100, whatever it is. Anyway, 12%, 12.4% growth rate since 1890s. If that's the case, if that had continued, by 1950, we would have had three, almost four million members at that rate, at that rate. Look at what we would have had by the year 2000. We would have had 210 million members by the year 2000. Do you see that? 
That is on that rate alone. If we have maintained that decadal uh, growth rate that did take place after these great revivals based on righteousness by faith. Now, that's 210 million. How many do we have today? 18, 17, 18 million, right? 210 million is more than 10 times what we have today. But that's by the year 2000. Guess what it would have been by the year 2010. You ready? 471 million people. That means that right now we would be half, almost half a billion, yeah, half a billion people would be Seventh-day Adventists today. My point here is what converts people is conversion. <laughs> what converts people is, is relating to God, is responding to God, responding to a person, not responding to a set of beliefs. Now, a set of beliefs, and this is why, you know, I teach at the seminary and I teach uh, students how to preach evangelistically. And that's why I have a really strong emphasis about preaching evangelistically Christ-centered sermons, because that's the only thing that will change people's lives. But it does change people's lives. Just last Sabbath, a week ago, we baptized three people. Well, we baptized 40-something people. But we baptized three people who four weeks ago knew nothing about the Bible. Four weeks ago. You may say, well, that's, hey, that's a little quick for baptism. Not if you had seen them. One was the head of, I mean, it was a charter member of the Knights of Columbus. Who is that? What are those? That's a service organization that the Catholic Church has. The mother is a, a very active Sunday morning mass attender and very active in the church. And you know how old they are? Early 70s. You know how difficult for anybody at that age with that strong roots in the Catholic Church to make such radical change in four weeks? It's impossible, except, except when they see the love of Jesus come through. Except when they understand the power of God. And so these people surrendered everything. And they are going with their eyes wide open. Because I'm a teacher, so when I do evangelistic meetings, I teach. I don't just leave stuff behind. It's thorough and complete. And so it's evidence, evidence that, that God can really change people's lives. But that's because they're connected with God with the God of heaven who has written this wonderful word that we have. Where is my Bible? Here it is. In other words, every, every text of Scripture, I mean every doctrine of Scripture is seen through the eyes of Christ. And that is what transforms people. It is not, well, um, I'm glad you believe that, but I believe this. That would normally be the case, right? Unless they're connected with Christ. If, you're connected, if they're connected with Christ, it's no longer you believe that and I believe this. It's Jesus believes that and I want to believe what Jesus believes. You see, um, the love of God is an astonishing thing. It really is an astonishing thing. And this is going to be the subject of our contemplation and study for the ceaseless ages of eternity. This is the inexhaustible subject that, we will, that will keep us um, subdued and surrendered and willingly, happily following the Lamb wherever He goes. 
because we have understood this beautiful thing. It is much more than what we can think or imagine. Um, Johnny Barnes, have you ever heard of Johnny Barnes? Johnny Barnes is a Seventh-day Adventist in Bermuda. He became an Adventist some 35 years ago. And when he became an Adventist, he, he fell in love with the Lord Jesus, started reading the Bible, getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning and reading his Bible. And he read his Bible for two hours solid every morning, and he worshiped God, and he prayed to God, and he surrendered to God. And one of those mornings, he felt very impressed that he should go to the busiest intersection in Bermuda to share his faith. And, and, and you would think, well, this is a little strange. Why? Because Bermuda is an island only, you know, it's a, it's a British protectorate. And uh, there are only, there's only a short stretch of highway that is two lanes, you know, that is four lanes, that is two on each side. Very short. Everybody who works has to go through there. So what did he do? He went to that intersection, and here he is. And you know what he's doing? He's got his hands cupped like this, and he's yelling at the people in the cars. And he says, I love you, God bless you, and he does that every single day from 5 in the morning until 10 in the morning, rain or shine, every single day for 35 years. You may say, that's a little strange, you know. You had to be really inspired to do that. Well, he was. Why? Because he was so full of the love of God that one morning he was impressed to have to share it. How can I do that with this whole island? How can I do that? And he didn't think of anything better than just doing that. And you know what? He is so well known. He is better known than the Queen of England, you know, who is the actual a head of government in that island. He is better known than the, than the governor general. It, there, is no, there is no sculptures, no statues of any historical persons in Bermuda, except for one, Johnny Barnes. I, I, I was in my hotel room and I asked a, a parking attendant, have you heard of Johnny Barnes? And she throws her head back and and looks at her, another a friend and says, Johnny Barnes, of course, we all know who Johnny Barnes is. And then when I researched it on the internet, I found thousands and thousands of references to Johnny Barnes and, 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 and blogs who would say, for instance, I was sick this morning, I didn't want to go to work. You know, they has, that's a lot of international insurance and banking, a lot of money in that island. I didn't want to go to work. But I knew that if I got in my car, before I got to work, Johnny Barnes would tell me that God loved me, and he means it. And so people do that. The London Telegraph, one of the most famous British papers, says, Johnny Barnes, a devout Seventh-day Adventist, is a face of Bermuda, its most definitive icon. It's most photographed tourist attraction. Why? Because he knows the love of Jesus. That's it. And he expresses it in a very unique way. Because he can't hold it back. And it doesn't matter when you can't hold it back when it's real. It's real. And people know it's real. So that's the key. A very important key. Tell them that Jesus really, really, really loves them. That's our message. That's the key to ministry power and ministry effectiveness. What is the next key to the ministry power in the Spirit? I mean, if you only did that, you'd be in good shape. What's the next key? Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He said that right before his ascension. You shall receive power. Under what circumstances did he say that? In being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, 
which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be, my witness, be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here's the key. Obey by praying together. This doesn't have to do with focus and message. That's the first one. The first one, the focus and the message needs to be tell them that Jesus really loves them. This has to do with method. And this has to do with practice and planning. And this has to do with what, what is the supporting mechanism that allows us to have this power, this key to ministry effectiveness. And that is to obey by praying together. That's the key. Together. Together. Not just separately. You know the story. If you've heard me speak, you probably heard me about this story. Murmansk. In, there was an Adventist church. A little town out there way up north. You know, above where... About, you know, imagine Alaska. The very tip of Alaska. Northern tip of Alaska. That's where this is. Okay? That's how far north. Nine months of winter, 22 members in the church. People don't move there. They leave from there as much as they can. And so eventually the church ended up being eight people. Hus I mean, the pastor and his wife and six other men who worked in the fishing or in the oil industry. Eight people. When they realized they were dying, they started praying for the Holy Spirit. And they started praying for God to use them to reach out to others in this dead town. Really a dead town, basically. And you know how they did it? They would go every morning at 6 o'clock in the morning to the Walrus Club for a swim in a frozen lake. What? 6 o'clock in the morning. What they would do, they would strip down to their shorts. They would go uh, to the middle of the lake, they would break down the overnight ice that had formed. They would kneel down. No, they would submerge themselves first, all seven of these men, in the freezing water, come out and put their arms around and pray for the Holy Spirit to descend upon them. And you may wonder why not pray in somebody's home by the fireside. And the answer to that is they wanted to hold themselves accountable to God by saying, God, we're not going to wait until everything thaws out before we baptize people. We're going to be ready every day that you put us in contact with others to do your work. And this was their way of being constantly ready. Did anything happen? Sure enough. Eighty people were baptized the first year. Now, the church from eight to eighty, that's pretty good, right? What is that? That's a thousand percent growth. Sixteen would have been a hundred percent growth. This is a thousand percent growth. So if you have a church of 200 people, it would have been 20,000. No, it would have been, been 2,000. Something like that. Enormous growth, anyway. In addition to that, they planted other churches in this place where there's nothing. They started planting other churches, all these little fishing villages. Full of the Spirit of God. Why? They prayed together. They pressed together. They, they stormed heaven together. Listen to this promise. The promise is made, to this, this statement, the promise is made on condition that the prayers of the church are offered and in answer to these prayers, there may be expected a power greater than that which comes in answer to private prayer. Do you see that? That's Manuscript Releases, uh, Volume 9, I believe is 313. We'll see it in a minute. 303. The power given will be proportionate to the unity of the members and their love for God and for one another. You see that? You see the difference? So it, there is a difference between praying together or praying alone. There's a big difference. It's proportionate to that commitment of doing this together. What led to Pentecost? What led to Pentecost, according to Acts 1, is that they prayed together. They stayed in the upper room and they prayed together. 
you can read all about it in about four or five pages of the books, The Acts of the Apostles by Ellen White. Read uh, pages 35 to 38. And that's exactly what, we did, what, they, what they did. And I summarized it right here. They gathered together to wait for the promise. They humbled their hearts in true repentance. They confessed their unbelief. They recalled the words of Jesus regarding his death. They repeated to one another truth they remembered from Jesus. They meditated upon Christ's holy life. They determined to share Jesus to the world. They prayed with intense earnestness to lead sinners to Christ. They put away differences and came close together in fellowship. They praised Him in song for sins forgiven. They contemplated the love of God with wonder. And they took hold of the imparted gift. All of these things. This is what happened during those 10 days. Now Jesus didn't say pray for 10 days. Many people think, okay, if we just do something for 10 days or 40 days, that's another big number that people think about. No, he didn't say that. He says, pray until. It only took 10 days for them, but for some of us, it might take months or even years or maybe just days for something to start happening. The point is, we need to pray until... Until we're filled with the Spirit of God. How do they do this? They did it together. Remember this statement, a revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. This is First Selected Messages 121. This is, this is, this is the only statement in the 100,000 pages of, of Ellen White's manuscripts, 100,000 pages, the only statement where she has three superlatives in one sentence. The greatest, the most urgent of all our needs. In other words, there's nothing as critical, as important, as urgent as this. She says, to seek this should be our first work. Our Heavenly Father is more willing to give His Holy Spirit to them that ask Him than our earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. But it is our work, she says, by confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions upon which God has promised to grant us His blessing. A revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. And what are the conditions, these four conditions? Confession, that includes praise, by the way, not simply confession like a confession to a priest in the Catholic Church confession. The confession primarily in the New Testament is confessing the name of Jesus, confessing how good Jesus is. Uh, humiliation, that means surrender. That's not the same way in which we use the word today. Repentance and earnest prayer. A really coming together. And that's why most revivals in the last 300 years have always been taking place, have taken place with young people. Because young people are much more willing to do this together. It's normal for them to get together. Don't wait until you are this old, as old as I am, because it's a much more difficult thing to get together with other people. This is why God begins revivals with young people who actually do this. They actually do this. Jesus said, God said, I am the Lord your God. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Isn't that a beautiful text? In other words, I'm ready to give you everything you need. I am ready to give you everything you need. Now, here's another statement about how we should really pray, okay? Um, I'll read the, the reference at the end. Shall not our half-hearted supplications be turned into petitions of intense desire for this great blessing? This great blessing meaning the outpouring of the Spirit of God in our lives. We do not ask. Okay. Well, let me finish this, and I'm going to let you go. And if anybody's interested in seeing the rest of it, then, then you, can, you can stay. Um, we do not ask for enough of the good things God has promised. If we would reach up higher and expect more, our petitions would reveal the quickening influence that comes to every soul who asks with a full expectation of being heard and answered. The Lord is not glorified by the tame supplications which show that nothing is expected. He desires everyone who believes to approach the throne of grace with earnestness and assurance. Do we realize the magnitude of the work in which we are engaged? 
If we, if we did, there would be more fervency in our prayers. We would plead for power as a hungry child if we realize the greatness of the gift, if we desire the attainment of the blessing, our petitions would ascend with earnestness, importunity, urgency. It would be as if we were at the gate of heaven soliciting entrance. We should ask with an earnestness that will not be denied. He is the life and light of all who seek Him. The measure which we receive of the holy influence of His Spirit is proportionate to the measure of our desire to receive, of our faith to grasp, and of our capacity to enjoy the great goodness of the blessing and to impart it to others. The Bible Echo, August 5, 1901. The last key is remember that He is always with you. That's from Matthew 28. I will always be with you. So the first is tell them that Jesus really, really loves them. Secondly, obey to pray together. And thirdly, remember that Jesus will always be with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for these important keys that will give us success in our ministry of reaching out to others. Thank you for Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.